We're going to be in Exodus, which is the second book of the Old Testament, chapter 32, looking at verses 7 through 14. The title is An Invitation to Intercession. If some of those words are new to you, intercession just is another word for prayer, specifically to pray for others, for their salvation, for their benefit in whatever they may need. So that's the invitation tonight. There's a lot that we're going to learn from Moses' attitude in this text, his uh, humble attitude. Also, the trajectory of his prayer has a lot to say to us tonight. So be paying attention uh, for those things, as well as things we're going to learn about God. And one thing I will say before we read the text, we're going to see one of these perplexing ideas in the Bible, which is that the Lord changed his mind. And so uh, a lot has been written on this, and some of you have heard some of these concepts. One of them has been captured in two words called open theism. Open theism is the idea that the future is open to God and that he doesn't necessarily know everything that's going to happen. Open theists would say something like this, God has a pretty good idea, but they would deny a fundamental uh, characteristic of God, which is God's omniscience. That is that God knows everything. So when we run into ideas like this in the Bible, we have to kind of wrestle with it and see, you know, how are we to understand what's going on here? And that will be in the text tonight. So why don't you do this? If you're able to stand with us, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus 32, we'll be reading beginning in verse seven, and it reads this way. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Exodus 32, seven, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly, Exodus 32, 8, turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people, Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation, 11. Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn now from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit, inherit it forever. And so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Father, for your living word. As we tackle it tonight, as we jump in, we want to have ears to hear what you would say to us. We want to learn what it means to be more like a Moses and indeed more like a Jesus, more like Christ. The ultimate mediator, the ultimate intercessor is Christ. Thank you for this word to us. Thank you for your mercy, which is better than life itself. And just tune our hearts to what you would say to us tonight. May you be pleased with both the teaching and the receiving and hearing and acting upon the word of God. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. 
So you can see that the Lord speaking to Moses is the covenant name of God in verse seven, those caps, that is Yahweh spoke to Moses and urgently told him, go down at once, go down quickly for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That's the opening verse, verse seven. So an urgent plea for God, from God to send Moses down to the people. I will just say to you, for those of you putting your thinking caps on tonight, that there would be no reason for Moses to go down and do anything if God intended to destroy the people. Amen? So one thing that you can pick up right from the get-go is if God truly wanted to destroy everybody and start over with Moses, there's no need for some urgent, uh, you know, uh, command Moses get down there and do something. Now we Mos- we know Moses is going to go down, and he is going to confront his brother. He is going to confront the people. He is going to deal with the calf and the whole scene. And there is going to be a severe discipline from the Lord. The Lord does discipline His people. Amen. He disciplines the one in whom He delights, the one that He loves. Discipline's not fun. But the writer of Hebrews says it does yield a positive result in our lives if we are trained by it. And so here is the, the urgent sense. Go down. Notice uh, God says, your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Most pastors, preachers cannot uh, refuse to see the humor in this. You know, we often will put this in the parental realm If you're married, we might say something like this, your son, your daughter saying it to your spouse is misbehaving. That child of yours is not obeying, etc., right? And while that is true and it's kind of funny, I'm not sure that that's really what the Lord is doing here, but the Lord is in some respects disassociating himself from the people Because the people have disassociated themselves from him. Amen? They have made a God in the form of a golden calf. And they have sacrificed it and worshipped it. And they have proclaimed, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And it's almost as if God is saying, okay, if that's the way you want it. If that's your God, then I guess I'm no longer your God. Now, all the way through the book of Exodus, if you've been with us when we started in 1984, started teaching verse by verse the book of Exodus, you'll know that God on many occasions said that they are my people. Let my people go. Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my firstborn. I've shared with you the covenant language here that they entered into really what is considered a marriage at Mount Sinai. No doubt that the people are God's people. They've you know, been chosen by God all the way back to the days of Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob who's renamed into Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham and we know that that covenant was unconditional. Uh, Abraham fell asleep when God passed through the animal parts and made his proclamation and his promises, reiterating them to Isaac, uh, the, the miracle child from um, Abraham and Sarah, and then ultimately to Jacob, who becomes Israel. And so what is God saying here? Well, probably a couple things, just focusing on the two words, your people. Probably, hey, they're trying to separate themselves from me, but perhaps 
to uh, impress upon Moses his link to them. After all, Moses is the one who led them out of the land of Egypt. He has become their leader. He has become their intercessor. He is up on the mountain receiving the laws. He has acted as a go-between in terms of the, the covenant and all of that. So I think that there's a couple things working here. And one on the human side is that Moses does associate with the people. After all, his brother is at the bottom of the mountain and he's the one who's constructed that golden calf, you remember. And Moses has other family members down there as well. So even though uh, God has said your people, uh, God has not given up on them. This is not, if you look at the, uh, the last part of the verse, he says they've corrupted themselves. They are not beyond God's grace. Um, you know that in Genesis 6, the world had become so corrupt that God brought a flood and he saved Noah and his family. But here, the people have corrupted themselves, but it's by virtue of an action. It's by virtue of their idolatry. They're not beyond help. They're not beyond hope, but they have fallen hard. They've fallen into sin. There's no other way to say it. And there are many times in our lives when we fall into sin as well. And we're so grateful that God doesn't give up on us. Maybe there's been some seasons in your life where you would say, I went back and I did some things that I shouldn't have done, said some things I shouldn't have said, and you felt somewhat corrupted. Now, you're clean before God because of the blood of Christ, but you felt you know, like you had prostituted yourself is one way to say it. And so um, there's a couple things going on. I don't think that God is shifting blame to Moses as we might do as parents when I use some of the humor there. But I think he is driving Moses back as, as the mediator. God said in Exodus 6, 7, and 8, then I will take you for my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord, Exodus 6, 7, and 8. Now, the Lord is true to his promises. We often fail, but the Lord does not. Ezekiel 28, some people think, speaking of Lucifer, the devil himself, verse 17 says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. That's Ezekiel 28, 17. So the Lord begins to describe what has happened to the people. Notice what he says, verse eight. They have turned, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf. They've worshiped it, sacrificed to it, and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, we learned from a couple other uh, texts that Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And from the book of Exodus, we have learned that he's gone up and down several different times to receive things from the Lord and communicate them to the people as that mediator. And so now Moses is being told what's been going on at the base of the mountain. He doesn't know. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro upon the earth that he might strongly support those hearts who belong to him. But Moses doesn't know what's going on down at the bottom of the mountain. God knows. God sees everything that's going on. Moses has been up in the splendor of the glory of God. 
Can you imagine being Moses? God says, hey, there's an urgent matter I need you to attend to. What is it, Lord? <laughs> this glory is wonderful. I've had such a great time being up here. What is it? Well, here's what's happened. Your people have turned aside. They've made a golden calf. They've worshiped it, sacrificed it, and proclaimed it as their God. Now, if you're Moses up on the mountaintop, you have to be thinking, what? They did what? And God doesn't say that Aaron's in the middle of the whole thing, right? But if Moses would have been told that, he may, he may have lost it completely. Your bro fashioned this golden calf. The Israelites, says one writer, uh, couldn't believe how long it was taking Moses to come down the mountain. And God couldn't believe how quickly the Israelites had fallen into sin. That's just using human speech. And so the Lord does not bring up Aaron's role in the whole debacle, but the people have broken the first and second commandments. They've made an idol. They've worshiped it. They've put other God, another God before the God of the Bible or alongside him. And they have embraced false gods that they saw embarrassed by the true God. Amen? In fact, Exodus 12, 12 tells us that the plagues were specifically directed against the gods, small g, of Egypt. And yet, the people have made one of those gods and worshipped it. Why would they do that? They saw them embarrassed and humbled at least 10 different times. What does it take for us to finally realize that the, God of this, the gods of this world, small g, are impotent to do anything for us? What's it going to take for us finally to realize that they can't produce what they promise. The golden calves of this world that people bow down to, they're not going to produce what they promise. As one writer puts it, but old habits and old ways of thinking die hard. And sometimes we are tempted to go back to our Egypt. Egypt becomes a picture of the world, of the old life, the life that we're in slavery in, but still we somehow become enamored by. And our sin jeopardizes our blessings from God, all that's good in our lives. We know it, but somehow we still find ourselves pounding away at our golden calf sometimes. And so the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, nine. Behold, they are an obstinate people. Every other modern version says they are a stiff-necked people. Now, I have a stiff neck often. Anybody else? Now, my kids like to make fun of me because sometimes they call me and I move my whole body to respond. Yes, <laughs> what can I do for you? <laughs> right. And uh, it's not fun to have a stiff neck, but that's not what this is really about. This is not that you have some aches and pains and your neck's a little stiff. This is actually the idea of a beast of burden in the original language that its master is trying to get it to put on the yoke and move in a certain direction, and it refuses. You've seen the pictures of the donkey that you know just kind of sits uh, down and won't move, and they're trying to drag it along. That's kind of the idea here. To be obstinate is to be difficult, to be oppositional, to make everything hard, and not to listen to your master. And that's exactly how Israel kind of became coined throughout the Old Testament. They are an obstinate, stiff-necked people. Now, I hope that none of you have that reputation. 
And don't look at anybody if you think they might (laughs) in the room. But to be obstinate is not a good thing. This is a paragraph from Riken's commentary. It's hard to hear, but I think it's worthwhile. This is a dangerous position for anyone to be in that is stiff-necked. Obstinate, stiff-necked people always think they're right and never admit they're wrong. They refuse to listen to good spiritual counsel. They say, I'm sorry, but that's just the way I am. And then they expect everyone else to deal with it. They ask for advice, but they don't follow it. They go ahead and do what they were planning to do anyway. And when they get in trouble, they're unwilling to be corrected. Yes, they say, but my situation is different. And then they offer some kind of excuse. When they go through suffering, they complain about it, but they never seem to learn from it. They never change. They never grow. And the saddest thing of all is that they don't even know it. Since they, ne- they never bow in true submission to God, they don't even realize how stiff-necked they are. Now, the opposite of stiff-necked uh, people or obstinate people is to be soft, teachable, and pliable. Now, if your desire is to grow in your faith, if your desire is to mature and move forward in your life, don't be obstinate. Amen? Don't be stiff-necked. Be soft and pliable, especially to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't you know, just discount spiritual counsel or people who have gone before you with years or spiritual wisdom. Don't just dismiss what they have to say. They have a lot to say that can be of great value if we're willing to listen. If only my people would listen. How many times did God say that of Israel? If only my people would listen to me. And, and if you open up your ears, you can save yourself a lot of sorrow. And so God says to Moses, now let me alone, now then let me alone, verse 10, that, I, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. The Hebrew word kala is an absolute destruction. And I will make of you a great nation. God essentially says, get out of my way, leave me alone. Let my anger, my full wrath burn against them. I'm gonna destroy them and start over with you. Now, if you're Moses up on the mountain, you might contemplate just for a couple of seconds, right? Hmm, <laughs> let's see. Everybody would call, be called the Mosesites or something like that. Kind of a cool prospect. I'd be the new Abraham, the new patriarch, the new beginning. <laughs> pretty wonderful. And all those people who are pretty much a pain down at the bottom of the mountain, well, poof, they'd be gone. It's almost like the, the famous movie Home Alone. You know, I'm sick of my family. I wish they were gone and whoop, <laughs> they forget you. <laughs> Off they go. And so Moses all of a sudden is told by God, leave me alone, I'm gonna destroy them. Question, does God need Moses' permission to destroy his people? Answer, no. Do you see how we're getting little hints in the text? that what God is actually doing is not uh, desiring to destroy his people, but inviting Moses to intercede for his people. And in Moses, we do have a picture of the Messiah, which we'll get to at the end of the message. But right here, God says, leave me alone, which I think is kind of a veiled invitation for Moses to pray. 
I'll start over with you. When the devil uh, tempted Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he basically showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. And Jesus, of course, uh, dealt with the temptation with the word of God and told the devil to scram. What's interesting to think about is that Jesus was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness and be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now, the Lord drove Jesus out to face that temptation. I don't know, I'm not gonna be dogmatic on this, but this was a thought I had, that Moses faced a similar temptation up on the mountain. Now, God never tempts us to sin, so in this case, it's a test, when Jesus went out into the wilderness, it was a test. God doesn't tempt anyone to evil, but he does put us through tests. And if you look at this from the conservative theological standpoint that God is omniscient and he never planned, he never really changed his mind, he was doing something else here, then Moses was being put through a test. Genesis 22.1 says, God tested Abraham. God does put his people through tests. Amen? What do you think he's trying to accomplish when he tests us? What do you think? He's trying to mature us, right? He's trying to grow us to make us stronger. If we pass a test, we get stronger in our faith. Now, often what the Lord uses for a test, the devil wants to use as a temptation. But one writer put it this way, what Moses is faced with is the dictator's dream. You say, what do you, what do you mean by that? The dictator's dream is that I have a whole nation of people that follow me and worship me and obey me. In essence, Moses is really being given a test so that where his allegiances lie, do they lie with God? Does he really love the people that God has entrusted him with, or are his allegiances elsewhere? This is what's been called a rhetorical proposal from God. And basically it's something like this. Uh, Here is what I will do unless you intervene. Balls in your court, what you gonna do now? Now God knows what Moses will do. Moses, according to Numbers 12 verse three, is the most humble man on the planet. Moses walks in humility. And he does not want to see this happen. But some of the reasons, in fact, I think every reason that Moses lists as to why God should not destroy the people have all one thing in common. They all have to do with God's glory. Let me make an application point here. If, you're, if the trajectory of your prayers are driven by the character of humility and for the ultimate uh, reason of God's glory, you'll be doing really well. Let me say it one more time. If your prayers are driven by an attitude of humility with the intention of God's glory, I think you're gonna see a lot more prayers answered and I think you're gonna be praying for the right things, amen? An attitude of humility with the desire for God's glory. And so God has opened the door for Moses to intercede. And there is a need for intercession, a desperate need indeed. And 
uh, Moses is going to intervene. And there are people that he does love at the bottom of the mountain. And I'll pause here to say that I know a lot of you are praying for people that you love. And it seems like they're at the bottom of the mountain right now too. Maybe they're messing around with golden calves and they've lost their way. And what do you do then? You know, it's easy to throw up our hands and just say, oh, well, you know, maybe you should start over, God. (laughs) But that's not the attitude because we were there at one point as well, were we not? I had had made and worshiped my own golden calves on more than one occasion. And Moses was just a man and he wasn't perfect either. And so Moses will take the role of a mediator. And it's a beautiful thing that he does. He steps in. In other words, as one writer puts it, what does he say? Do not cease your persistent entreaty and I will not strike the people. God knows that Moses will do this because Moses has a wonderful heart. And I want to show you just a couple of parallel passages. Hold your place in Exodus. We're going to turn to the book of Amos, which it may have been a while if you've turned to Amos. All right, so you're going to have to pass up all the major prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, okay? And then you got Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. Keep that in mind because we're going to move to Jonah in a second. But the first one is Amos chapter 7. Take a look at what happens here. Amos 7 verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm, Amos 7, 1, when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? He is so small, or he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this, It shall not be, said the Lord, verse four. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. And then I said, Lord God, please stop. Now the first time he says, please pardon, verse two. Then he says, please stop, verse five. How can Jacob stand? He's talking about the nation here. How can Israel stand? He is small. And the Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Now, the Lord is the one showing Amos these things, inviting his intercession. Amos sees the prospects of what could happen. God invites his intercession. Please pardon, please stop. And then the Lord mercifully stops. In the book of Jonah, which is a little bit more to your right, um, Jonah famously is called to preach to Nineveh, that great city, the capital of uh, Assyria. And he's given a message, and the message is to call upon the people to repent. This is how it reads, Jonah 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed or overthrown. Jonah 3, 5. The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, Jonah 3, 6, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and of his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. 
but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. That's a, a garment of mourning or repentance. Let man call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that, that we shall not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that is their fruits of repentance, if you will, that they turned from their wicked way, God relented. Some uh, versions might say repented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Now, once again, the only reason that God sent Jonah to Nineveh was to get them to repent. Amen? Otherwise, if his plan is just to destroy this group of people, there's no need to send a prophet, no need to send a preacher. But we know God's heart is full of mercy and compassion. Amen? He's compassionate for our country, even as bad as things have got here. As crazy as it is, he has compassion. He has compassion for countries that we might not even think twice about. Some of the great moves of God in our day and age are in countries that we might not even imagine. There's a major move of God in Iran right now, we're being told by missionaries. A major move of God in China right now. And it's in places where it's difficult to be a Christian, where God is really moving and the church is exploding. That should say something to us. Here's a couple scriptures to write down. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? He has spoken, and will he not, not make good? 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind, 1 Samuel 15, 29. So what is going on here theologically? Well, one must make a distinction between something interesting called conditional declarations and God making unconditional determinations. This is a key to think about. The difference between conditional declarations of God and unconditional determinations of God. That is, God uh, said that he would have a, one of David's uh, kin or uh, from his body sit on his throne. That was an unconditional promise. Yet at the same time, there are some things that he says conditionally, like if you do this, then this will happen. Now, it's not like God doesn't know the outcome, but he still lays it before the people. Let me show you a key passage to kind of work through this. It's in the book of Jeremiah 18. So it's a little bit back in your Bible. Just wrestling with some of the theological implications here. Uh, Jeremiah 18 is a good place to park and consider what it says here. So Jeremiah 18 verse seven reads this way. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation, Jeremiah 18, 7, and, or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. At another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, 10, then I will think better of the good which, with which I had promised to bless it. So then now speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. 
Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say it is hopeless. For we are going to follow our own plans. Each of us will act according to the stubbornness, there it is, of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, who ever heard the like of this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? Or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. They have stumbled from their ways from the ancient past to walk in bypaths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Then they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah. See, they wouldn't listen. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come on, let us strike at him with our tongue. Let us give no heed to any of his words. Jesus, when he cried out to Jerusalem, said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together. Your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Brothers and sisters, wherever you lie on the theological spectrum, man has a choice, a real choice. And if we heed the voice of God, God is merciful. God will give us many opportunities to repent. Back to the book of Exodus and we'll wind down for tonight. But he does call upon us to make a decision. And here Moses is interceding, representing the people. That's something we need to see. Moses would not leave God alone. God said, let me alone, I'll destroy them. And Moses would not leave him alone. One writer asked the question, will we? Will we throw up our hands on our generation? Will we leave God alone and no longer beat the gates of heaven for the people that we love and the nation that we've been blessed to live in? So let's look at Moses' prayer. Moses 11 of Exodus 32 entreated the Lord. That means he basically begged or prayed the Lord his God. And he said, oh Lord, why doth thine anger burn against thy people? Why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Now, the Lord knows what he did for Israel, but Moses' first prayer is, you demonstrated so much power, so much glory in the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptian army. Why, after all that show of power, will you destroy the people? That's gonna kind of ruin the retelling of this story, don't you think? Now remember, Moses' main concern is what? God's glory. He doesn't want this story to be told in a different way. So he says, Lord, you did so many good things, so many beautiful, powerful things. In Exodus 32, 32, just to show you the heart of Moses, Moses will pray this prayer. Now, if you will forgive their sin, verse 32, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. 
if you won't forgive them, this is how far Moses is willing to go, then write my name out of your book of life. In Romans 9, Paul prayed a similar prayer. He said, basically, I would that I be accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren. I had a friend that preached on that passage and he said that Paul's salvation wasn't his to give away for the salvation of somebody else. But it shows you the heart of Paul from religious persecutor Saul to a heart like Jesus. Moses spending all that time in the burning glory of God, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, full of mercy. And what happened to Moses? He was like his God full of compassion, full of mercy. And when we walk with Jesus, what happens to us? Sometimes we surprise ourselves. <laughs> what would normally come out of my mouth in a given situation, sometimes is completely different. I'm like, where did that come from? Well, we know, right? It's the Holy Spirit living in us. Uh, Samuel, one of the great leaders of Israel, said, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, 1 Samuel 12, 23. Elijah and Elisha were intercessors. Uh, Moses, Daniel, Nehemiah pray incredible prayers of intercession in Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 9, and on and on it goes. I, I would say that every great man or woman of God has been an intercessor. Amen? And even from the cross, Jesus says, Father! Forgive them, they know not what they do. That's an intercessor, amen? If we want to see things change, there's some key insights right here. Verse 12 says, why should the Egyptians speak prayer number two, request or even question number two, saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, kind of like they would gloat in their conversations, maybe over a cup of coffee. Yeah, he led them out, but he killed them all up in the mountain to destroy them from the face of the earth. And then an actual prayer request, turn from your burning anger, change your mind. Notice the first one to mention the change of mind is Moses, not God. Change your mind. Don't harm the people. Why should the Egyptians conclude that you rescued them only to destroy them all? That, that, that's not going to glorify you, Lord. Please turn from your wrath. And then finally, prayer request number three. Remember Abraham. Remember Isaac. Remember Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself, since you could swear by no one higher, and you said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Oh Lord, remember your covenant. I know they've broken the covenant at the bottom of the mountain, but you remember your covenant. Does God need to be reminded about what covenant he made? <laughs> no. But oftentimes when we pray, it reminds us of who God is when we pray pray a promise back to him. He doesn't need to be reminded, but we need to be reminded. And it does show Moses' faith. Abraham, who also interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, when he was talking to the Lord, he said, far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Genesis 18, 25. God does not need to be reminded of what's right and wrong. He knows what's right and wrong. 
He also knows when it's time to judge and when it's time to say, look, I'm going to provide a way of escape, but I am asking you to take it. Moses makes no excuses for their sin. He doesn't say, oh, the people are freshly out of Egypt. That's why they don't know any better. He doesn't make excuses for any of it. He simply just appeals to God's mercy. And so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Psalm 106 verse 23 puts it this way. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. But that's exactly what God planned. He chose Moses to be the mediator. And God looks down at a broken, sinful world about 2,000 years ago, and the ultimate mediator comes down on a rescue mission. And he's not coming down to a friendly world that's going to be super excited to embrace him, especially in the halls of the temple. Amen? He's going to be rejected by his own people. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And so Jesus, the greater Moses, comes down on a rescue mission. The Hebrew word in our verse is nakam, which has the idea of relenting or changing the mind. And uh, there's an interesting little section here by John McKay that might help us round it out. This is uh, in Riken's commentary, and he says, the Hebrew verb used, uh, nakam, usually translated as relent or repent or changing one's mind, does not always mean to change one's mind, but can also mean to be moved to pity, to have compassion for others. This is precisely what God had for Israel, compassion for their sinful rebellion. It is not, writes John McKay, that God is being forced to adopt a new course of conduct because of some flawed decision of the past or because of un some unforeseen circumstance that has arisen. He knew the golden calf was coming, etc., it was the Lord himself who had opened the way for the threat against his people to be removed by the appropriate action of the covenant mediator, namely Moses. And God knew exactly what he was going to get when he made us, when he made the world. Some people say, why did God even bother if he knew we were going to fall into sin? Why do you bother doing anything with anybody? You know what you're going to get when you plan on having children, do you not? I hope so. <laughs> you're going to get wonderful, many, many wonderful blessings, but you're going to get also many trials because your kids are little sinners. It's true. But then it's true that all of us are little sinners, are we not? We all know our hearts pretty well. And had God made a determination based upon what he was going to get from us, ain't none of us ever going to be here. None of you would ever have existed. I would have never existed. God would have never taken the opportunity. But he knew we would fall. He knew what would happen in the garden. And he had a plan all along. In fact, from the foundation before the world was ever made, Jesus was crucified. God knew. God is not caught by surprise. A golden calf, I can't believe it. Moses may have been, God was not. God knew what he was getting with us. 
He provided a way for us to be saved by his mercy because he's good. Amen? And the gospel is good news for sinful people like you and me. And Jesus came down on a rescue mission because God is merciful. And one day God will remove the stain of this sinful world and our own struggles. And by divine decree, we will be free. Right now we battle many, many things. But I I hope you see the gospel picture in the story because the gospel picture is that the ultimate Moses came down. Go down. I will go down. I will intercede, Father, for them. I will pay their ransom price for all their golden calves, all their sins. I will pay the ransom. And because of that, one day we will experience the full realization of that great salvation. Lord, we have it now. Thank you. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the promise guaranteeing our future. The guarantee is the Holy Spirit um, in us right now. Thank you for what Jesus did at the cross on the mountain, the mountain of mercy. Thank you that you came down on that rescue mission, Lord. You went down and you encountered a world with many golden calves, even in places where we might not expect them. They, many people worshiping gods, goddesses in the Roman, Greek and Roman pantheons, and even in Israel, many false gods, gods of greed and money, and even gods of religion that don't save. And yet, you came to your own because you love us. You're the the greatest mediator of all, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets. You are God. See, if we really want to understand this picture, we have to understand that Moses represents God. Jesus is God, and the heart of God is one of love. Thank you that you so loved this broken, fallen world that you gave. You gave yourself, Lord. And we want to take a moment just to celebrate that beautiful reality. And, and it's who we are. It's, uh, it's the message we represent, Lord. It's a message of hope. It's a mes- message of redemption. A message of a God who loves even those who rebel against him. A God who poured out his wrath on his son instead of us. We're so grateful for that message. Just take a moment to let the word of God sink down into your soul. A little Selah moment here. And of course, if you've not met Jesus, and I know this room is filled with believers, but this would be a great time to get to know him, trust in him for your salvation. Come into the kingdom, trust the king. Trust his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection. You don't have to have perfect words, but pray. Ask him to save you. You've been wandering. Maybe you have made a golden calf or two lately. (laughs) Repent of that sin and come back home. Your mediator is here for you, and he loves you. And then, Father, for this precious congregation, help us continue to be busy about your business in this generation. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, all God's people said, amen. Would you stand?